Heavenly Father, I, I want to come leading your people in bowing our hearts to you as this good and wonderful God who knows all things. God, there is, is nothing that we could say, there's nothing that we could ask for at this time that you don't already know. And what, you know, we, we come to you as your kids and ask that, that you would hear our requests on behalf of all of us. God, I want to pray for those in our church family who are sick, who are hurting. We think of Rachel Silk and ask for her full recovery. We pray for Tim Healy and his recovery. We thank you that you've heard the, repair, the, the prayers for Randy Morrissey that, that there is no more internal bleeding. We pray for his strength and recovery. I pray for those this morning who are dealing with aches and pains and diseases that you've not healed yet. I pray for your compassion in their lives, for a patience and a trust to believe that you, you see them, you love them. We pray, Father, for our city. We, we, we pray that you would give wisdom to our, our leaders. I, I think of Ben Ezel and, and Jonathan Waddell, and you've placed them in those city council positions. And so I pray that they would lead well. I pray that you would w- lay on their hearts a, a strong conviction to lead with integrity and honesty. They face pressures from so many sides. Give them wisdom on what are the decisions to make that are best, not for their own agenda, but for our city. We pray for our fellow churches. We want to pray this morning for Crossroads Church, for Emmanuel Enid, for First Baptist Church and First Indian Baptist Church. That in these churches, that believers would work to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that these churches would be witnesses of the truth with love. We pray for those who are are working with MB Mission in, in restricted areas. We pray especially for this couple that they would, they would continue in their preparation to to go to Southeast Asia. God, we want to pray on behalf of them, even though we don't know who they are. We know you know them and their needs and and ask that, that they would be filled especially with strength today in the work you've called them to. As we go into your word this morning, I ask God that you would give me the words to say, that you would give my brothers and sisters here the hearts to hear what you need them to hear and that the unity of the spirit would be evident just in the time we have together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Well, I was encouraged as we read the scripture together this morning. There is something about the unified voice of God's people reading scripture together that was an encouragement to me. We've already read it this morning, but I do want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you can grab a Bible out of the chair in front of you and you can follow along with us on page 977. Page 977. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We're looking at what it means for us as believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. That this is part two of a message I began last week that I called the gospel two-step. Somebody uh, was, was giving me a bad time this week that I was talking about dancing in church. Well, th- th- there's a, a purpose to this, that, that talking about the gospel two-step, it should bring some imagery uh, of dancing to our mind because that's what the gospel does. It, it gives us a spring in our step. That there is, is a walk in following Christ that's not meant to be a, a drudgery at all. That it is, it is a walk uh, of life that the gospel gives to us. And, and so I, I talked about last week in, in part one that, that there is this step out of spirit-fueled duty. That there are particular virtues and actions that should mark our lives that should be on display to other people humility and gentleness and patience and there are actions that we take of of bearing with one another in love and being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that's that first step but like we talked about last week if there's going to ever be any progress in your life you can't just simply have one step there has to be another step You have to put one foot in front of the other. And so this morning, we're going to complete this this two-step walk that the gospel produces in our lives with God-centered doctrine. God-centered doctrine is this second step that completes the work of the gospel uh, in our lives. If you look at at chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins by saying, I therefore... That, that Paul is, is taking this turn in the letter of Ephesians here where he says, I have given you three chapters of indicative. Three chapters of this is what God has done. This is how the grace of God has been revealed to you. Now, because of that, walk. Because of that, I'm going to give you a command, the imperative. Walk. This is... This is the message of the Christian faith, and this is what makes Christianity different from other religions. See, other religions would say, you walk this way, and then God will do something for you. You take these steps, and then you can find God. And Christianity says, no, it doesn't work that way. God doesn't give commands to his people, except that he has already done something in our lives. That because you have received the grace of God, Now you walk this way. And this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion. God is the one who who reaches down and he shows us kindness and he saves us in his son, Jesus Christ. And then he teaches us how to live. And so this morning, Paul is going to be giving, I want to show you how Paul gives us this, this second step. 
how walking with God is about a God-centered doctrine and how it's, it's a God-centered doctrine that both defines the unity of the church and it's also a God-centered doctrine that maintains the unity of the church. <clears throat> so first of all, I, I want us to see that the God-centered doctrine defines unity. When we talk about doctrine, what we're simply talking about is it's the teaching. It's the teaching of Scripture. Now, you may have had an opportunity to, to, to go th- through school and, and sit in a class, and you're like, I know I have to know this for the test, but this is not going to matter in life. I, I remember this repeatedly going through Algebra 2, where <laughs> like, you could almost always guarantee somebody in the back would put up their hand, teacher, when are we ever going to use this? That the Bible doctrine is never intended to, to be like a math class where you sit there scratching your head going, what does this matter for real life at all? That there is always a purpose to biblical doctrine. It is to turn our attention more towards who Jesus is and, and, and what God has done. That it is always to give us a truth about God and his work so that it would impact our lives. Doctrine is never meant to be an, an end to itself. So when we talk about God-centered doctrine, what we are talking about is, is the teaching about God. It's, it's a teaching that is, is to, intended to turn our attention ever more uh, sharply Onto God, who He is, what He has done, and how we are to respond to Him. Now, I want us to look here at, at verse 3, where Paul tells us that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This unity of the Spirit is the pivot point in this little section. Because there are these attitudes and actions, these virtues and actions that we have that that are to lead up to an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then Paul shifts here, and in verses 4 through 6, he wants to emphasize how we know the unity of the Spirit. And how we can be sure of the unity of the Spirit in the church is is the statements that Paul makes in verses 4 through 6. You see, when when Paul talks about the unity of the Spirit here in verse 3, this word unity in the Greek is, in the original language, is simply oneness. That there is a oneness of the Spirit. There is a oneness that the Holy Spirit creates. And then Paul wants to, to, to just shore this up by making seven statements, seven very brief doctrinal statements assertions to drive home the point of of this is why you should be eager to maintain the oneness of the spirit it's because it's the oneness of the life that god creates now when paul makes seven statements here he's there's there's an intentionality to this that anytime in scripture that we see something, uh, we see the number seven. We see the number seven used to demonstrate perfection. That, that seven is this assertion that something is perfect. And so Paul repeats the word one here seven times in verses four through six. Count them with me. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all seven. 
Paul is, is symbolically driving home the point that the unity that the Spirit creates, the oneness that the Spirit creates, is a perfect oneness that it can't be improved upon. There is nothing that we could add to this and say, oh, this is actually makes an even better uh, oneness. There's no human definitions of unity that we could make that would be better than the oneness that the Holy Spirit has created. So Paul then wants to say, I'm, go- I'm going to show you seven one things, seven ones that the gospel declares that should emphasize to you, you are one in the Holy Spirit. And the first one he says here in verse 4 is one body. Why is it that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? It's because there is only one body. When, when um, Paul writes one body here, he's talking about the body of Christ. He had mentioned it already back in, in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He actually spells it out, the body of Christ. Here, he's saying, just in shorthand, there's only one body. This is, is not just a, a reference to, to the visible church. Paul is referring to the invisible church that, that's wider than any one gathering of people. That the, the body of Christ is, is larger than this group that's meeting here right now. That it, is, it spans generations, it spans cultures, it spans languages, it, it, it spans uh, geography. That there is all who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, all who have received the Holy Spirit are bound into one body of Christ. This is the body of Christ here on earth and the body of Christ in heaven. Believers who have gone on ahead. We are still, we have, we've been divided by space, but we have not been divided by the fact that we are still one body of believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul writes this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Because there's only one Spirit, because there is only one Holy Spirit, believers are necessarily connected to each other inseparably. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can't, he, he can't be divided out. And because the Holy Spirit can't be divided out, we who are Christians are necessarily all connected to each other. This is why Paul says that to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When Paul's talking about here in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, in, in verse 1 he called himself a prisoner. And now uh, the, the word prisoner there literally means bonded one. Paul was a prisoner because he was bound. He was, he'd been bound by chains. He was bonded by chains that was the, the way of, of letting him know you are under the authority of the state. You're under our control. But now Paul does a little play on words here in verse 3 where he talks about the bond of peace. That 
He says, believers, because of the Holy Spirit, because there's only one body, you have been bound together. You've been bonded together, but, but your chains are, are not chains that have put you under the authority of the, of the state. You have been bound together with peace, peace together under the authority of the Holy Spirit. It's like the old family reunion, three-legged race. You know, that you get, you get tied up with somebody else and the idea is to, is to, to race from here uh, across the grass. And there's always somebody that just tries to just like, I'm just going to drag you and we're going to win. Yeah. Uh, and and if, if you just try to, to exert your own will, those are the people that end up like, like falling all over each other. There's, there's a team that wins and, and it's not the team that necessarily has the, the fastest person it's the team that look that coordinates. They they walk in sync together. They're bound together, but instead of being a bond that uh, slows them down, they they work in in peace with each other, and they work in sync, and they are able to complete the course. And, and the team that is able to be, communicate the best together and work the best together is the team that wins. See, the, the Holy Spirit has bound us all together in one body. We need each other that our walk must necessarily be together because we all share one spirit. And that's what Paul says there in verse four. He he reemphasizes there is one spirit. Now, the question is, is, is in your Bibles here, it's capitalized spirits. If you're reading it in the ESV, it's like, well, it's clear it's, it's a capital S, but but we know that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit here because Paul refers to the other two persons of the Trinity uh, in this section, where in verse 5, he refers to one Lord, that's Jesus, and we'll come back to that in a minute, and then he refers to one God and Father of all. That, that Paul is saying it's, it's the unity of God. All of these statements here of oneness are, are flowing out of the unity of God. Because God is three in one, God is at work to demonstrate his wisdom, to demonstrate his perfection in his people by us being one. Again, it's as we look to God and we look at, at God as the center and we turn our eyes towards him, that is really what's going to define the unity of the church. And Paul goes on to say, then in verse 4, the, the, the third one, the there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That what, what defines Christians is that we all share one common hope. It doesn't matter if you go to Peru, if you go to Niger, if you go to India, or you go here in the United States. Believers in Jesus all share one common hope. Oh, we may have individual hopes. What do you hope for in the next year? And those may be varied. But when you say, what is your ultimate hope? What are you ultimately hoping for? That hope that's at the bottom of all other hopes. To be a believer in Jesus Christ means that hope is that you will be with the Lord forever. We all share that hope. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world that unites us together as believers, there is only one hope, and that is that we will be with the Lord forever. 
And that is the Lord that is referred to in verse 5. There is one Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the Lord was, was Yahweh, the God of Israel. Moses said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the New Testament, we understand that the Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's an intentionality here to to Paul saying there's one Lord. That, That unity breaks down when individuals try to raise themselves up as Lord. That pride, when pride enters in, then unity is, is going to break down. Division is, is, follows right along behind pride. But there's one Lord, one who is over us all, that, that we all submit to Jesus as Lord. And then Paul talks about one faith and one baptism. Now, there's, there's two ways that, that these uh, are talked about in the New Testament. Oftentimes, we, we read faith as the act of believing. That without faith, it is impossible to please God. That we must believe God. But, but faith is, is not simply just something that, that we exercise. It's not something that, that is just, I have faith in some kind of general sense. The New Testament is clear that there's, there's a, an object of that faith. There's a content to it. And we actually see faith used in this way. In Jude chapter 1, verse 3, Jude writes this. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. When, when the New Testament talks about the faith, it's talking about this is what you are actually sinking your faith into. It is the faith. It is the content that you're actually believing. And this, there was only one faith. There was only one unified message that the apostles preached. There, there, there was a multiplicity of preachers. One message that was preached. It was a unified message. It was the faith the content of belief about who Jesus is, what he had done. And then there was one baptism. Baptism, again, was oftentimes going into the water of baptism. There was a water baptism. But that's not the only way that baptism is talked about in the New Testament. There was also the baptism of the Holy Spirit that to receive the Holy Spirit was to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then most frequently when, when Paul talks about uh, baptism, he talks about being baptized into Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Listen to how Paul talks. Listen for baptism here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
When Paul talks about baptism here, he's, he's not trying to, to get us to focus on what we have done. He is trying to focus on the act that has brought us into relationship with Jesus Christ. There is only one act that unifies people into Christ. That is, those who are baptized into Christ. There's only one. There, there's not a, a separate act uh, for Jews, and there's not a separate act for Gentiles. That there's, there really is not any distinction between child baptism and adult baptism. There's one baptism, and it's a, a baptism into Christ. So we, we have here the, the work of the Spirit that creates one body and the, the work of the Spirit that, that creates one hope. And it's the work of Christ that is proclaimed in one faith. It's the person of Christ that we are now baptized into. And then the, the last one here is in verse 6 where Paul says, One God and Father of all. The, the unity of the Godhead is, is once again uh, finished here by the statement, there is one God and Father of all. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24, God himself said, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? That for Paul to make the statement that he is, that God is the God and Father of all, he is making a statement that God is supreme over all things. This is a, this is a comprehensive statement of God's supremacy here. To be the Father of all means that, that he is the one who is over everything as the one who is creator and sovereign over all. The one who is over all, that, that he is in charge of all things. There is, there is no area of the universe that has been delegated to any other power. God is over it all. That God is through all. He is working through all things. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. That there is nothing that happens that God is not working through for his purposes. And then God is in all. There is no place in this world where God is not present. There is only one God that is present in in all of creation. That this is what defines the unity of God's people. It's these truths about God. And so... I want us to see that this is the the doctrine, the teaching of God that unifies us as a church. It defines our unity. You deny any one of these seven things and you are no longer part of the unity of the Spirit. If you deny any one of these seven things, you are denying the person and work of God as he's been revealed in Scripture. And so this means that it's not the name on the sign that defines the church. It's the teaching of God that defines the church. 
So, so you can drive around town, and, and there, there may be uh, groups that, that put church on the name, but if they deny any of these seven things, they are denying the person and work of God, and they are not a true church. See, it's God who defines the church. We don't define the church. It's God who defines who is in the church. It's not us who defines who is in the church. And so this is the second point is that it's a God-centered unity that main, or it's a God-centered doctrine that maintains the unity of the church. It's a God-centered doctrine that maintains the unity of the church. If, if God is the one who defines the church by the teaching about him, then it is the teaching about God that is going to maintain our unity as a church. Because doctrine defines unity, doctrine is what we need to maintain unity as a church. And one of the greatest stories uh, of endurance is the account of Ernest Shackleton, who led a, uh, an expedition across the continent of Antarctica. In 1914, uh, Shackleton gathered uh, a group of men together and, and they set off to do what no one else had been able to do, and that is to actually go all the way across the continent of Antarctica. They, they suffered uh, in, incredible hardship that the, the ice and the, the temperatures were, were so brutal, it snapped their, their masts in half on their ships that they... Uh, they went through incredible difficulty maintaining food and water. Uh, but, but Shackleton, had, he had rounded up his team of men with a mission. The mission is we are going to go across Antarctica. That had defined their mission. That had defined their identity as a group. How was it then that they were going to maintain their unity as a group? It was the mission. It was the mission that defined their unity as a group, and it was the mission that maintained their unity as a group. How much more if the doctrine that defines us as a church is to be the doctrine that maintains us as a church? There, there's many different attempts to create unity out in the world. That there are, are, are many temptations to try to find a, a, some other kind of unity Oftentimes, unity looks like a, an organizational unity. Organizational unity is, is to try to form a unity out of, uh, out of religious practices or out of social practices. And if we all do these things, then, then we will be able to, to be unified. But that's a unity that, that goes from the outside in. It, it's a unity that, that looks horizontally. The unity that, that a God-centered doctrine creates actually goes from the inside out because it is a work of God in us that works its way out of us. And when a God, it's a God-centered doctrine that is our unity, we are no longer looking horizontally, we're looking vertically. See, one of the, the biggest problems with divisions among us as believers is that we get our eyes off of Jesus and we get our eyes on other things. We get our eyes off of the greatness of God and we become enamored with the greatness of our own ideas, the greatness of our own plans. What we need as a church to, to maintain our unity is that our eyes commonly fix upon Jesus Christ. Not Jesus in his, his simplest form, Jesus in his fullest form. 
One of the reasons why it's important for us to, to dig into our Bibles, to, to dig into letters like the letter of Hebrews, because in the letter of Hebrews, we meet Jesus as our great high priest, knowing that we have a Savior who has not only died for us, but is now praying for us. A Jesus who not only paid for your sins on the cross, he is going to pray and see that you hold fast to your confession of him until you meet him face to face. See, when we all turn our attention to Jesus, we say, how do we get to know Jesus better? How do we get to know life as as Jesus defines it better? That is what's going to, to draw us together and maintain our unity as a church. That's something far better than any kind of plan or any kind of program that, that we could put together and say, you know what, if we all did this one thing, then we would all be unified. No, this, he is the one that we look at. That there is for sure an importance for us to be unified in a God-centered doctrine. But I, I want us to bring us back to the beginning that, that this is just one step. We have to also have that other step of spirit-fueled duty. That, that our doctrine should lead us to, be, to being humble and gentle and patient. And as we are humble and gentle and patient, we are going to want to learn more about who God is and what he has done. We want to receive more from God, him teaching us. You see, there's, there's a tendency, and, and this is a natural tendency of all of us because we are all imperfect people, that there's a natural tendency for us to step out strong with one side and then not as strong with the other. That, that there's some of us that we, we're good at, at stepping out with the duty but then the doctrine, we just kind of drag behind. Or we're good at stepping out with the doctrine, but then the duty, we just kind of drag behind. But what is that? What is it when, when, when somebody steps out strong with one foot and just kind of drags the other along? It's a limp. We, we, we've seen the limp, and, and the limp, you, you can move, but, but you're just not effective. That what God has called us to is, is not a gospel limp. He's called us to a gospel walk. And how much more? Do we need Jesus? Because what one of us is able to walk perfectly with the right doctrine and the right duty? And the right doctrine and the right duty. Oh, we all fail. There's been only one that's been able to walk this perfectly. Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. Jesus, who lived his life with grace, perfectly humble and gentle and patient. And Jesus, who is so full of truth that he said, I am the truth. May we be a church that is unified in a common vision of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow our our hearts before you, asking that you would unify us, the unity you have created in us as a church by your spirit, that we would maintain. That we would maintain it in dealing with one another in love. 
bearing with one another in love. That we would maintain this, this unity by, by digging into your word and knowing you better. I pray that, that Christ would radiate out from this church. That there would be an eagerness in us to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to join me in standing and hear the blessing of God. From Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are dismissed.